This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, a source for your darkest dreams and your sauciest nightmares. Today with a special Halloween edition discussing what scares us and how that translates into the films we consume. I'm Martin Lindenmeyer talking in this voice due to a head cold risen from the depths of hell itself. I'm Erica Spires, hoping my virginal past has made me a shoe-in to make it to the end of tonight's podcast. And I'm Brian Hurt, and we are recording this at midnight. Well, it's midnight in Iceland anyway. I am Nathan Shelton, and I am a horror aficionado and obsessed with all things spooky since birth. Welcome. Since birth, I came out of the womb obsessed with monsters. And you said, that was gross? Yes, it was pretty terrifying. And gross. I'm the evil twin. I do have a twin brother, and I think I, out of the two of us, I am now the evil twin. We flip somewhere in high school. Oh. And yeah. you run a podcast. Tell us about that for a second. I do. I run the Frightmare Theater podcast, and it is a scripted horror anthology series from my company, Arcane. And every month, we have a brand new, completely original, fully produced audio drama with all sorts of spooks. And, and a lot of them are really terrifying. But some of them are horror comedies, too. And we kind of run the gamut on all the subgenres. I have a great team of writers from all over the U.S. who are part of Arcane. And we have our monthly writers meetings where we sit around and laugh and create awesome horror audio dramas. Nice. Horror movies. <laughs> I got a question for you. Mark, you just said it. Brian, could you also say horror movies? Horror. The rural juror. Horror movies. What are you asking of me? Are you one of the horror movie people? I have always said horror, and only recently have I started to try to say horror because I get made fun of terribly by people here in the Northeast. I have a friend from Britain who's like, what are you saying? He's like, it always sounds like you're saying whore. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. I'm saying horror. So I'm feeling vindicated right now. You broke the cardinal rule of asking someone to say something as you ask them to say it, and they'll never say it right. You have to trick them into saying it. Now we're all going to trip up the whole rest of the show. Or- what are your favorite kind of movies? Oh, I don't know. Horror. And then you find it. <laughs> horror. I just hurt my ear saying that word. We all say horror, though? <laughs> horror. Yeah, horror. Yeah, interesting. I think that's kind of all we need to do. Let's just wrap up today. Okay. Hey, <laughs> good call, everybody. <laughs> that's it. Done. Erica, you kind of initiated this, I think, partially because you knew about Nathan. Do you want to say a little of what your idea for the topic was here? Yeah. So you can go so many ways with this genre. We've done some shows where we've done just full overviews of certain types of genres. And I think in this one, we kind of decided, well, it would be fun to just talk about things that are scary. What scares us? What frightens you? And how that changes. And, you know, Nathan, a lot of what we like to try to do is talk about a subject and then kind of try to dissect why or how we consume that. So we all have picked at least one film that has scared us terribly at some point in our lives from various genres of the scary sort. And I thought we could do a little bit of discussing about that. What frightens us? How does that change through the ages and with technology and with our ages? Maybe we should give some priors. Erica, do you like actually consume horror films? Horror films? Horror films. <laughs> yeah, for me, not a lot. My mother was always very afraid of everything growing up. She always liked suspense. So my in was much more from the suspense aspect than it was for pure horror gore aspect. 
But recently I've noticed that I've really enjoyed them more and more. And I think part of it is just because I'm getting older and I find it more fun to be scared than I did when I was younger. I was just afraid to sleep. So Nathan, I know you consume a lot. Do you have sort of a favorite subgenre, things that you, you know, for sure catch everything in this area, but like other things like mm, once in a while? That's changed for me over the course of my life too. My dad is a huge horror buff and my dad introduced us to horror films when we were very young, like toddlers. And um, we started out on the black and white classics, the universal films, you know, Top Browning's Dracula, Bela Lugosi, stuff like that. And I loved those. And then I remember when I was four and I watched Thriller and The Making. And I got obsessed with the notion that not only is it scary because it scared the crap out of me, right? You had the zombies and the werewolf and everything. That was terrifying. But then you got to see behind it and got to see how Rick Baker did the makeup and all this stuff. And I was like, what? And it was like this explosion of creativity in my mind. And I knew from that moment when I was four years old that I wanted to be an actor and a special effects makeup artist. And I'm one of those lucky people. I've never deviated from that path. That's what I do now. And I've always been obsessed with it since that. And I remember when I was eight, my dad would never let me watch Night of the Living Dead, the original 60s Night of the Living Dead. He said it was too scary. And I'm like, it's black and white. It can't be that scary. I was homesick one time. My brother was at school and I watched this movie when I was eight. And my mom was in bed. She was sick. And I came in there and I'm like, hey, mom, can I watch Night of the Living Dead? She was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Just go away. You know, so I put it in and When the little girl's going after her mom with the trowel, my mom came in to get me to take my brother to school and I spilled over my Coca-Cola that I had and I was like, it did something, it broke me. And for three months solid, I had nightmares of zombies killing my family. I could not stop. We almost went, they almost took me to therapy. It was really bad. So for a long time, I could not watch zombie movies at all. Nothing with zombies, let alone that. I didn't even watch that movie again until I was like a senior in high school, maybe freshman in college because it scared me so badly. But now I love zombies. Love, love, love zombies. But for a long time, man, that was so scary. I couldn't do it. Nowadays, it's mainly things like existential dread, (laughs) you know, terrifies me as I've gotten older. And I, I understand more about the way the world works. Going mad. I love Lovecraft. Lovecraft is like one of my favorite. So anything having to do with madness and the perception of reality shifting and all that kind of stuff, that's the kind of shit that scares me these days. Brian and I, I know we share a little bit of a history in that we were best friends in high school. We saw pretty much every stupid, terrible horror movie, right? Right. But I mean, I saw horror movies before I met you. I mean, the first horror movie I saw, I had to leave the theater because I started crying. What was it? Well, there were eyes in the woods as Snow White was going through the forest. And I was four. <laughs> and I don't know who thought that was a good idea to let me see that movie. That was <laughs> That is a terrifying scene. That was back when Disney was scary. Mm-hmm. I'm a very jumpy person and jump scares, I guess, are sort of fun, but they're also sort of cheap and sort of exhausting for me. And I have discovered over the years that of all the different genres, I think that horror that doesn't work is the most disappointing and the biggest waste of my time. And that's partly why I don't watch it that much, because when it doesn't work, I just have such an empty feeling the way that even kind of dumb comedies, if they're a little funny, I can enjoy them or hokey action movies. But man, a bad horror movie just doesn't do it for me. I think what I really enjoy these days, body horror still just really freaks me out. And I think the unstoppable and I think it's the slow zombies I find way more scary than the fast ones. It's not something that's chasing me. It's quickly is something that won't stop chasing me. So 
those are the things that I really key in on now as an adult that I get the most enjoyment out of. What about you, Mark? I also remember some made-for-kid fare traumatizing me. Of course, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yeah. I would not eat blueberries for my entire childhood because of that goddamn movie. (laughs) And I didn't see it all the way through the first time because as he was rising up towards the spinning fan when they had ingested the bubbles that made them weightless, I was crying. Man, I guess I cried a lot. I may cry during this podcast if you scare me enough. Just don't turn off the lights. Kids movies are scary. We should just be talking about terrifying kids movies. And I wish I could remember the name of the thing that, I don't know, I was at least six just because of the house that we were in but it was like a made for kids kind of a mystery thing where somebody you know is live action but somebody was disguised as a like a headless ghost a female black robed figure and i was imagining this thing in the hallway and complained to my mom she's like come on it turned out to be like the cousin or whatever like get over it like it was basically like a scooby-doo episode made into a live action something but that scared me Enough, And I don't think they let me watch real horror movies when I was that young. I remember when Cousins visited, when I was like in maybe sixth grade, going out and we rented Friday the 13th, the final chapter. That was the first one of those kind of things that I saw. (laughs) That was the first in the whole series that you saw? (laughs) Yes, the final chapter with Crispin Glover and some other... (laughs) He's doing that weird dance in the living room. I did rewatch that recently and was a little appalled at how just the plot point. I don't want to go into that. It did not make sense. But then, yeah, that started a whole in high school. Brian and I were very omnivorous with our other friends that we would rent just about anything. And we would count any horror movie that had a plot as like good because we saw so many that just really didn't <laughs> that for just the eighties were a particular low point. And I have very little tolerance for terrible movies like that. Hellraiser 9 or whatever, but I really do appreciate anything that is a good movie. And there's something about just a dark tone in something, something in the soundtrack. It's almost like comfort food to me that I will seek out that kind of media above others. Would you guys like to, we can briefly share our picks as something that, what I said was pick something that has scared the bejesus out of you at some point. And I I find that hard at the moment to pick a film that has done that for me recently. I get more of that out of television lately because there's just a prolonged period of terror, like The Haunting of Hill House, for example, that scared me for so long. So for me, I went with something that kept me up at night. Who would like to begin? Mark, you got a classic one. Go for it. Well, see, the one that actually scared me is this 1975, it's the third segment in Trilogy of Terror. It's the only one anyone remembers. It's Zuni Fetish Doll. Called Amelia. Yes, about the fetish doll. And it sort of gave birth, I think, to just all the Chucky movies and the Puppet Master movies and just anything where there's some small, completely evil thing that is running around slashing your Achilles tendon or anything like that. Did that come out as like a made-for-TV trilogy? Yeah, it's a Dan Curtis, the guy that did Dark Shadows. It's one of his. So it had that very eerie, gothic kind of score. And Karen Black, she's in that. The Zuni Fetish Doll, That's I don't really remember any of the others from that. I remember that one, though. That It's scary, and it's unrelenting, like Brian was saying. It's just, it keeps going, and you can't stop it. And it has that great shocker ending to it. It pushed the envelope for television, too. That Back then, they didn't have that kind of scary stuff too often for television. If you haven't seen this, it's only about 15 minutes long. You can find it on YouTube. We'll link to it from this episode. You should just go watch it if you've not experienced it. Well, did you rewatch it, Mark, for this? I did. And? 
This is one of the kind of things I thought we should bring up is what do you think fear actually amounts to? Like, is it keeping you up late at night with its spookiness? Like, no. One of the films that I found the all-time most physically affecting was Arachnophobia. Like anything that has real life, like somebody smashing their finger with a hammer, I find way more effective than any ghosts and goblins kind of thing. And so this has exactly that, that it has a stupid Twilight Zone episode kind of setup of this doll that, oh, it has the spirit of a Zuni warrior in it. And if I take its necklace off, then it'll come to life. Like she's on the phone telling this to it. That's the opening. And then the necklace falls off. But then from there on, it's just this very visceral thing running around and it has a knife and you're trying to grab the knife. She makes very stupid decisions that for some reason can't get out of her apartment. I don't understand that part. There are lots of parts that don't make sense, but just the image of this, you know, almost like a little wild animal that could rip your throat out, just running around trying to attack you, I think is super still affecting to me even now. Physically. That feeling of not being able to escape no matter what you do. Just an aside on arachnophobia, which was that supposed to be scary or a comedy or? It's a horror comedy. Horror I comedy. Say. I mean, John Goodman's character is very comedic in that. I saw it in the theater and it was a theater that had a balcony. And during the climactic scene when all the spiders, like, I guess all descended once, someone emptied a box of rubber bands from the balcony down into the. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That was the best part of the movie. Yeah. That's some William Castle stuff. (laughs) To see so many people jump out of their chairs. (laughs) And that wasn't the theater that did that. It was just somebody in the audience that decided. No, this was in college. It was sort of a second run when that week. Gotcha. On Sunday night. So. (laughs) Oh, man. That's fun. I would have liked to have been there. I think that would have been a good time. Nathan, you have one you want to get us going on? Yeah, like I said, you know, horror is subjective, and so different things scare me in different ways. There's jump scares, and I think that's also pretty cheap. A good jump scare, well-placed, is awesome, but if you have too many in the whole movie, just relies on those, like a lot of Hollywood movies today, I can't get into it. But, you know, some of the things that really, really are unsettling to me, there's a few modern ones, but really, the ones that I mentioned when we were picking our movies for this, Rosemary's Baby, the Polanski film, and uh, the original one. And then the 19, I think it's 78, Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland and uh, Leonard Nimoy. That movie, from the very beginning opening credit sequence, there's something unsettling about it. It's directed so well. The audio, the sound, sound and music play such a huge part in horror, or the lack thereof, in building that tension. And he uses these camera angles in that movie that are just, they're wide shots and from far away. And you can see the actors talking in another room and they'll walk past, but you don't see them. They're almost like behind a wall. And you're like, what am I supposed to be watching here? And it's this eerie voyeuristic thing. And then as the movie progresses, you start to get more close and more close and there's more close-ups and it is paranoia at its best. The cinematographer and the director and everybody involved with the production end of that movie nailed sucking the audience in. You can easily suspend your disbelief when watching that. If you turn out the lights, turn up the sound and watch it, just be there in that horror movie. That movie is deeply, deeply effective and doesn't rely on a lot of jump scares. It's just this feeling of dread that, oh my God, are they going to make it out of this? How could they possibly make it out of this? And even if they could, would they want to in a world where something like this could be happening? And that to me is true horror. Thanks for recommending that. I had seen it years and years ago, but it's on prime now for free too, I believe right now. Yeah. And I, so I rewatched it and it had been a long time and it really holds. Yes, it does. Doesn't it? I know the story pretty well. And I've read, you know, I've seen different versions and the short story it's based on, but it's really good. 
and super creepy. And I feel like a lot of movies in the 70s pacing was maybe it's how they were making movies then. It just doesn't work. Or there's like, come on, move it along. And I think it was just the perfect time to make that movie. And it really worked so well. Yeah, I agree. And you really care about the characters too. They give you a, you get a sense of who they are before they are thrown into this crazy world, which I love because today it's just like, bam, everybody gets in there and they are all of a sudden there's, you know, in the first five minutes of the movie, there's a monster or a ghost or whatever coming at them. And we, it was like, who are these people? Why do I even care if they live? And back then they, they took the time for storytelling. So you know who they are. You can identify with at least one of those people. And so it, it helps you to get into it. Yeah. There's a real payoff. It's an earned payoff when you feel connected to each of those characters. And especially when you can feel that dread, you know, who's going, you know, who's going next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got to watch that. It's always one I watch every every Halloween. How about yours, Brian? Yeah, so our clubhouse leader is still in the 1970s, I think. That's not great, but I'm going to really bring us up to date with something that came out in the early 80s. So if we're not just a bunch of old people talking about things that scared us, <laughs> you know, the internet's ruined so much and our democracy. But beyond that, it's also <laughs> ruined. That's a horror show right there. <laughs> Back in the day, you would see something on TV and you weren't really sure what it was and you could never see it again because, you know, it was on and then it wasn't on anymore and that was that. And now you can just find it and you can see it again. And so I had seen a TV movie called The Dark Night of the Scarecrow, which in my mind, I always thought it was just called The Night of the Scarecrow because I didn't remember it very well. And it came out in 1981. It was a made for TV movie. And it scared me so much. I was shaking when it was over. I mean, I saw it by myself. It was on at night. And it's about a mentally challenged man who is wrongfully accused of a crime and he is hidden out in the open as a scarecrow and he's lynched. And through supernatural means, he or possibly uh, his little friend who's a girl are killing all the people responsible for his death. He has like this bag on his face with a hole in the mouth and holes for his eyes. And it was so scary to me. I used to draw pictures of that face to scare myself. I mean... (laughs) It was truly terrifying. This movie just got to me. I mean, like a lot of things, I think with comedies too, if you're in the right mood when you see it and you laugh, it's something that you always laugh at when you see it. And if you were in a bad mood and and it kind of ruined the movie for you, you never get it back. So anyway, this was a scary movie for me. And of course I made the, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but I made the decision to rewatch it in preparation for today's discussion. And I see why it scared me. They had all the, I was young. I mean, I wasn't even, would have been 10 maybe when it came out. Looking back, I realized that the scarecrow is the good guy, right? He's lynched by these terrible redneck farmers and I'm rooting for their deaths now. I mean, it's just a complete, I'm an adult. And what scared me as a kid were like the real obvious things that scare people. But it was actually pretty well made, I think, for being a TV movie. And Charles Durning being in it, he's a, probably a better actor than that TV show deserved. And it's a little goofy. It's a TV movie, but I guess it's uh, not something that scares me anymore, but a little window into my soul of when I was a youngster. I think even a cleaned up version of that movie still wouldn't scare me. It's just an artifact of a younger version of me. There were moments that I felt actually held up pretty well, considering especially it was a TV made for TV movie, right? It was a CBS movie. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember seeing the posters for that one. The poster was scary. They show that mask with the hole in the eyes. And I think it had a pitchfork going down like this. And I, I just remember seeing that. I don't think I've ever actually seen that movie, though. I need to go and watch it. I love Charles Durning. So. Well, this will probably be on the list as well, because it is free to watch on YouTube. 
I have vivid memories of scenes that didn't actually happen. Oh, really? I mean, at one point he runs into a pitchfork and I remember the pitchfork piercing his stomach. And that doesn't happen in the movie. I mean, they can't show that on CBS, but in my mind, it absolutely happened. Interesting. Wow. See, to me, one of the better parts of that movie when I was watching it was you never saw the scarecrow actually kill anyone. At the end, you eventually see something. But for the most part, it is that terror of not knowing what actually killed and picked off each one of these people. And you didn't even see a lot of blood. It was just completely in your mind. Yeah. I still think that's the most effective thing. If And I'm an effects guy, so I love blood. I love gore in the sense of, oh, that's cool. How do they do that? But like the torture, quote, torture porn movies that are out, the Saw movies, body horror, stuff like that. I don't really get into that because, I don't know, I'm squeamish when it comes to that kind of violence. You know, I could appreciate it, but it's not really my thing. But you go back to Hitchcock, whose whole thing was, don't show them everything. Wait until the last possible minute to give them the scare. And even then, you know, whatever we can come up with in our imagination is always, always going to be worse. Like you actually remembering that you saw that thing pierce his stomach. And then you go back and you're like, it never happened. But in your mind, it certainly did. And I think that is the true power of a really good horror director is knowing when to show things and when to leave it alone. If you look at the Blair Witch Project, that movie scared the the shit out of me. And the third time I saw it in the theater, the third time I stood up and I went, oh, and I had to sit back down. And I knew how it was going to end. I knew. I was bringing people to see it so that I could, sh- I love bringing people to see movies so I can share it with them. And seeing that in the theater, it's a whole different experience than seeing it at home. I got to say, I've tried to watch it at home. It's just too many distractions. But in the theater, you don't see anything ever in that movie. You don't even get a hint almost. But it's built up so well in their marketing. The first movie that really used that viral marketing, I had read everything about it before it came out. I knew it was fake, but I loved a year before the movie came out, they had the missing posters all over New England. And they had this whole backstory. They even did a sci-fi channel original special that tied along with it, where the police had done all these investigations throughout the 40s and all this stuff. And I watched all of it. So I knew (laughs) I was very informed. And I went to the movie and I just, I hung on every word of all those interviews. And people were sitting there going, this is boring. This is boring. You know, but if you were paying attention, it builds to such a great ending that that last shot, which I don't want to ruin for anybody that hasn't seen it, even though everybody today pretty much hates this movie. (laughs) I can't talk to people about it. I'm like a pariah and all my horror friends because they're like, really? But I mean, and it spurned an entire new subgenre. There were movies before that that were the found footage films, but that movie is always given the credit for really getting that whole subgenre going. And that's a very hit and miss subgenre in itself. But I just think they did such a good job with that Hitchcockian notion of not giving you everything and letting your imagination fill in the gaps. I agree. That was actually one on my list as well that I saw at least twice, maybe three times also in the theaters. And I was not a horror person, but I was just mesmerized by it. Yeah. And the performances are very real. Very good. Yeah. I guess all I need is a time machine so I can go back in time and see it in the theater because (laughs) renting it on video was... Not a good thing, huh? Quite disappointing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I own it. And I've tried to watch it for Halloween at Halloween parties and bring people over. Never goes well. If you're by yourself, you turn out all the lights, you don't get up to pee or do anything else. You just sit there and watch it on a bigger screen TV. If you have, I have surround sound that works, but it's not the same as the theater. It's just not. Some movies you need to be in a theater to see, I think. My film that scared the crap out of me growing up was actually technically a thriller, not a horror film, but I do feel like it has a lot of elements that you still find in a lot of horror movies. And my film is Copycat from 1995. It's classified as a drama mystery thriller, and it is about a serial killer who 
It's actually really about a woman played by Sigourney Weaver, who, by the way, her performance still totally holds up, as does Holly Hunter's performance. Amazing actresses. Yeah. Scary Connick Jr. Scary Connick Jr. (laughs) And he's terrifying in it. He looks terrible. He's creepy. And Sigourney Weaver plays, she's an author. She's an expert on serial killers and profiling. And in the beginning of the film, she gets attacked even though you can tell she's already scared of being attacked and she takes all these precautions. And that attack by Harry Connick Jr. puts her into her home and makes her agoraphobic. So you have that element of horror there where she can't really escape because she literally can't leave her house, but she keeps seeing things in her house and things that are misplaced just ever so slightly. So you know that somebody's creeping in there, but we as the audience never see them, not until like nearly the end. Also, another thing I think is really scary about this film is that she is an expert and yet she is the one being terrorized. And I think so often, eventually, like the one who's the expert we don't really worry about as much in a lot of classes. Well, at least like the 90s horror films I grew up watching, it was like the guy who knew all the stuff, he was always pretty fine, but it was all the people who just denied it who weren't okay. And in this one, she is ultimately the one who's terrorized, even though this copycat killer is going around killing other women, she's watching it and he's sending messages directly to her. So I rewatched this just today and definitely was not nearly as scared as I was growing up. But I watched it about three times when I was a kid. And each time, I think the last time I watched it, I had to have been like 12. And I went and slept with my mom and dad that night. I couldn't handle myself. And also just as a woman, I think it scared me. One of the things she says in the film at the very beginning, she just it's just like an offhanded remark. She's signing somebody's book and she goes, don't park next to any vans. And I so vividly remember that being a scary thing for me. And that one that I held on to going into adulthood was don't ever park next to a van. Make sure you're always out in the light. It made you scared of your normal world. That's what Halloween did for a lot of people. You know, that the ability for you to see yourself in that, in the reality of the situation, which... A lot of people can't do with paranormal things, but with things like that, with an actual attacker, I think a lot more people that don't like horror genres get into those kind of thrillers, suspense thriller things, because there's a horror element there that they can buy, that they can get thrilled by, but for people that like to be scared anyway, but that don't like supernatural horror. Yeah, I feel like I should be more comfortable with supernatural horror, but I don't know why I'm not. (laughs) Like, like it's really scary to read and see serial killers that are attacking women, but... Well, this actually is a good segue into that. Why is it that we like certain things? What are we learning from them? Are we learning things from them? Or are we just enjoying the thrill of being scared? You're clearly invited with something like Copycat, which I thought was just because he was copying Frank Sinatra, but I guess I was wrong. (laughs) Ouch. Oh, man. You're clearly invited to get scared, to sympathize with Sigourney Weaver, with the female characters. Is that really the case in even these slasher movies that have a final girl? Those seem like they're mostly aimed at dudes anyway, and totally so much skin. <laughs> like I think this is this is probably morphed to try to be more inclusive in iterations of that more recently. But certainly, I don't know what the female audience was if they if they found it just as scary, or if they're just like you guys are so juvenile, screw you, and this whole genre. <laughs> certainly, all the women I knew <laughs> felt like that. I agree that the slasher genre, that's low-hanging fruit. You know, there's a place for that. A lot of people really love that kind of shtick. I think the original Halloween that John Carpenter did was on another level. People call it a slasher movie. I don't really consider that a slasher movie because the characters, uh, Laurie Strode, the Jamie Lee Curtis character, you do care about her. She is a very intelligent character. And 
at that point, the very next year, I believe, is when Friday the 13th came out. Then it started automatically being about, oh, how can these teenagers die in horrible ways? But that movie, I don't think it was as much about the kills as much as it is a horror movie. And then right after that, with the Friday the 13th and all those other, not I Spit on Your Grave, but like, you know, Slumber Party Massacre, all those things later started devolving more into, we're rooting for the monster, not the kids. They have sex before they're married, they do drugs, or they drink alcohol, or they cuss at their mom, anything like that, and you're dead, you know? We're just waiting. It's like, oh, wait, he picked up a tire iron. Let's see what's gonna happen. It was just the fun of gore, and it was the birth of disgusting special effects and movies, which is fun, but I don't really find scary either. And very misogynistic, obviously, <laughs> like you were saying. I mean, I do know a lot of women who love those movies, but they were definitely made for guys and by guys. 13-year-old guys. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 13 through 16. Wasn't a lot of the, the power of Halloween was Donald Pleasance and his talking about this character as the ultimate evil, that he had such a gravitas and him delivering that sort of verdict on the killer, I don't know, helped a lot in like actually making you see this as a supernatural force rather than a confused <laughs> guy. I think the question that that first Halloween and the other Halloweens aren't near as good, the question that is raised is, is he just a man? What is his motivation? Because he has that blank face, that William Shatner mask, right? You can't see any expression and you don't know why he's doing what he's doing. He doesn't appear to be this crazy maniac just going around going, you know, he seems methodical in what he's doing and very purposeful. And that is scary. And with, like you said, the Donald Pleasance, the dialogue that he believes he is true evil, that really sets the scope for what that is. And I think is why that's so terrifying and why when Rob Zombie remade those movies, it completely missed the mark. I hate those movies. And I wanted to like them. I did. I wanted to like it, but I oh, I walked out of the second one. He gave Michael Myers three dimension. And in so doing, by giving him a backstory and a care, like we get his backstory in the first movie, but we still don't know why he's doing what he's doing. What broke inside of him? Is he pure evil? And gave him this traumatic childhood and, and gave us a reason. So then we're like, well, who are we rooting for in this? Are we rooting for the killer now? Because I didn't care at all about the high school kids in that movie. You always want a good villain, but the way those movies, the Halloween movies worked is that you don't know why Michael Myers is doing that. You can't reason with him. You can't get on some sort of human level with him because there's nothing. He's not even a monster. He's just a cold killing entity. And that is a lot more scary. That's a lot scarier to not know why. I think that's like why, like, and we've talked about serial killers before. Part of what fascinates, I think, women about serial killers is trying to figure out why. Because if you can figure out why, then maybe you can get to that kernel of a human in, in somebody. So I had never thought of that actually before about why something is scary is just because you don't know why. Because it's blank and it's just pure, or is it evil? We don't know. We don't know what the motivation is. And the music in that, oh my God, John Carpenter's score. I collect horror movie soundtracks from the 70s, 80s, 90s. And anything John Carpenter, that's one of the things that made that movie so effective is his sparse piano score. <laughs> you know, it's just terrifying. That's a good transition. My other one that I put for something that affected me a lot as a kid was The Thing, 1982. Ooh, yes. yes. John Carpenter film. And that's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of that score. Dun, 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 dun. Like, I still really like that movie now that I can just sit down and just, it's exactly why I like Sixth Sense, almost anything that, Night Shyamalan makes, like, he uses a score that has some element of that, that just puts you into this, I don't know, it jibes well with my depression or something. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see that. Ennio Morricone, right? Yes, some of the music. 
but also Carpenter. Carpenter's score is the that bump bump. I'm pretty sure that. Oh. See, there were two scores for the thing. There was an original score that I think Marconi did. And then they got rid of it, but you can still, I don't know if they used part of it for that. I don't know. There's a whole story there. You'll have to look it up. I was assuming it was Carpenter. I didn't rewatch it, but that's the movie where the head grows legs, correct? Yeah. Yes. Crazy ass practical effects. Yeah. And they still hold up. My being so creeped out by body horror, Mm. that's what I remember more than anything else. I think that's why I'm such a fan of David Cronenberg because- Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so unsettling and it's just what hooks in my brain and I can't let go of these really creepy things. And I don't know if it's actually scary at all, but the fact that I will think about it for weeks later and then decades later, it's all I remember. There's got to be something to that, that it's just recognizable enough to be freaking me out. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with the artwork that's painted by AI. If you've seen any of the Google created and you start zooming in and it kind of looks like a face, but then you get closer and you realize like there's a squirrel there instead of a human. And the AI is kind of pieced it together based on images of other things. I cannot look at them. Yeah. I'm giving myself the creeps just talking about it. It is. What's that fear of holes in the body too? Like periphery? No. Trypophobia. You know, like the pod of a lotus They've superimposed that onto skin before to make it look like there's like just giant open pores in the skin. And people can't look at that. And I find myself having a really difficult time with that in movies when there's like these deep pits inside that aren't, they're not, they don't even necessarily have to be oozing. In fact, it's sometimes even worse if they're not. They're just these pits that shouldn't be there. Whether it's that or I noticed a lot in the music that creeps me out. And of course, how much of this are we programmed to find is creepy and how much is organically creepy? Is there anything as organically creepy? I don't know. But I find that all of the music that's anachronistic is very upsetting. So like the beginning of The Night of the Scarecrow, they're singing this sweet little kid song a little bit out of tune. It's already like a little off, but then there's this underscoring that's in a very minor key that's going along with this major little kid song, and you immediately just feel weird about that. Right, like Insidious with the tiptoe through the tulips. Yes. Horrifying. And I think with the strings also, the weird harmonics, I think there is something that is hitting us in a weird part of the brain where we just know that this is not how... Things are supposed to sound. See, I thought, Erica, with the child song, you're trying to transition to your other pick. Freddy's coming for you. Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, yeah. It's just scary. And kids are already afraid. A lot of kids, I, you know, I think are afraid of going to sleep. It's not something they want to do. They're afraid they're going to miss out. But also you have scary dreams. And when you're a kid, it's really hard to tell. What's the difference? And you're not in control. Yeah, it totally plays on that fear. Now, how well those movies, I, I didn't go back and watch that one, but how well those movies hold up now, I'm not really sure. But I know as a child, anytime I saw a glimpse of one of those films on when it was past my bedtime, it would freak me out. And I still don't like basements because I just think of what if I see a furnace down there and that's where, did he get burned there or did his hands, what was it? No, he got burned by the parents of the kids because he was a child molester and killer and they killed him. He was the Springwood slasher, I think. They kill him, and then he comes back as kind of like a demon and can enter the kid's dreams, and he's getting revenge on all the parents who had something to do with his death. I think those movies are fun. They didn't really ever scare me. I didn't watch them when I was a kid, though. I was not allowed to watch those kind of movies. I wasn't either. It was always just like covertly when nobody right. knew You'd I was go away. Over to a friend's, a friend's house. <laughs> yes. I used to sneak around at my grandmother's. She had HBO, and we would watch Tales from the Crypt as well, which is full of 
boobs and blood and all the fun stuff that, you know, as a preteen, you're not supposed to watch, but you and your cousins and your brother, you know, sneaking around, you know, (laughs) late at night. So yeah, I mean, I would watch parts of those and I always thought they were a little silly, but that's the fun of Freddy Krueger is he has so much fun being bad. It's kind of fun to watch him. He has a personality. And honestly, I loved the crossover, Freddy versus Jason, that came out when I was working at a movie theater. That movie was just so much fun. It's so goofy. It doesn't take itself seriously. I think that's actually my favorite out of all of them. Did you guys grow up watching the Jason movies? Because I did not. I have never seen a single one. I didn't watch them until I was in college. So since we're circling back to this, <laughs> the goofiest part of Friday the 13th, the final chapter, Corey Feldman you know, in his yeah. Goonies cutest kid, he quickly, after Jason has already burst into the house and is killing people, he quickly grabs a razor and shaves his head. So there's just a few random sprouts and he pretends to be childhood Jason so he can talk to the big Jason and kind of just confuse him. And it only works for like, it's just so absurd. Right. Well, isn't he a makeup? He's, if I remember right, he's like a horror fan, right? He has all these masks and stuff. Yeah. So he somehow gets it in his mind that he can stop Jason by doing that. Yeah, it is. It's ludicrous. <laughs> they must have been smoking something when they came up with that plot line. It's out there, but it, everybody still talks about that movie with Corey Feldman in it. Well, and that's the one. So right after that, I don't mind spoiling the ending where Jason gets cut up into tiny, tiny pieces where they just <laughs> completely do what they should do in every horror movie and just dice that bastard. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yet he comes back again in the next one. Isn't there like a fake Jason in number five? And then he comes back in number. Anyway, there's something different. How does horror in horror, horror, see? I don't even know how to say it anymore. Some of these classic films, how do they compare to current genres? Like we're getting the Mike Flanagan stuff on Netflix. We also, the American Horror Story, not just on Netflix. What else is he on now? No, Flanagan did Dr. Sleep. Oh, yes, yes. Oculus and... The James Wan Empire. And the... Ari Aster movies. Yeah, yeah. Hereditary and Midsummer. That's uh, really good folk horror. And I think there, yeah, there are directors out there. You could also say Eggers, too, that did The Witch and The Lighthouse. Pretty horrifying movies. I, I loved both of those movies. They're more, I can't say cult horror, like um, Midsummer is cult horror, you know, like in the vein of The Wicker Man, mm-hmm. you know. I love that we're getting art horror back. Directors who take it seriously and are not just there for the scares, but they're telling a story and it happens to be in the horror genre. And Flanagan, he's definitely not afraid to give you a good drama that happens to be in a horror setting. The new Haunting of Bly Manor is beautiful. It is a beautiful gothic ghost story. Is it scary? Not really. There's some scares in it, but I mean, all these horror fans online are just bashing it, but he never set out to make a really, truly, the first the Haunting of Hill House has some really scary stuff in it, I think. I think that's terrifying, but also beautiful. A deeply emotional story. In my mind, Flanagan does for the screen what Stephen King does for books, for literature. Stephen King's stories are deeply character-based. And yeah, when you, know, when you talk about a Stephen King book, you're like, oh, that's the one with the virus, or that's the one with the pet cemetery, right? But you get really what makes people love Stephen King, why I love Stephen King, is his characters. They, you can easily get sucked into them, and Flanagan gets it. And now that Flanagan's doing more Stephen King stuff, he's getting ready to do Revival, which is a great Stephen King book. It's a newer Stephen King book. I wish he would have done It. I keep saying that if he would have done it, those new movies would have been so much better. And I'm not saying I hated them, but I didn't really. That's my favorite book of all time. 
is it. We did a Stephen King episode last year. So I think it was kind of interesting that none of us picked a Stephen King film as one that really scared us. Well, and it's hit and miss. Some of the best Stephen King adaptations aren't horror, you know, like the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile are widely considered some of the best King adaptations. And those are both Frank Darabont. He also did The Mist, which I think is a really good Stephen King adaptation and kind of underrated. But yeah, Dr. Sleep was really good. And I don't even know how he did it because the studio made Flanagan have that movie be a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's movie, which was anybody that's a Stephen King fan knows it's not The Shining. It's called The Shining, basic plot of The Shining, but it is nowhere near The Shining. And so somehow Flanagan managed to pull that off and make a sequel to the book and the movie at the same time. And King was even happy with it, which amazing. So yeah, in my mind, Flanagan can do no wrong. And if he's there, I'm there. I I will get my popcorn and just sit there and watch anything that man does because I love it. I want to relate back to what actually scares you in real life because, you know, Stephen King, since he's written so goddamn many of these, just... (laughs) Anything that scares anybody. So he's written plenty about domestic violence, about racist mobs. I remember reading Pet Cemetery, and the little boy who's, what, four years old or something is mobile and is running toward the highway and does die. And then him coping with that and being so, the father being so consumed with grief that he's going to dig up his kid and things, that relates to something real. Like, apart from any of the supernatural stuff or what was making the trucker have to go faster down that road and disregard uh, potential pedestrians, I mean, is that what makes... It seems like hereditary. That's why that was so painful to sit through is because it has, again, apart from the supernatural elements, it's firmly rooted in your child getting killed or something like that. I think that that's really touching on something that's powerful about horror and other speculative fiction, fantasy, sci-fi. In horror, you can take deep truths and fears of humanity and issues with, you know, socio-political aspects of our culture, things like that. And you can explore them in a way that you can't in the real world. So the notion of Pet Cemetery starting with this tragic, and it's what every single parent fears. I didn't think it would change me, but after I had a kid and my daughter was born, I would fucking cry at Kleenex commercials. You get more emotionally involved in life, I think. But that notion of fear of what could happen and then being able to take it a step further with adding that supernatural element and how far would you go to bring somebody back, even if you knew that there's a very strong chance they're not going to be who they were. And then it's even more terrifying because when they do come back, they're not the person that you knew, but they're still wearing their body. That's the thing that I think scares a lot of people about zombies is that person that's turned into a zombie. That's my wife. That's my neighbor. That's my child or my father, whatever. But it's not them. It's just their body, this husk walking around. And there's something behind those eyes that's not the person I loved. And that is absolutely terrifying. And I think that that story is so deeply affecting. I know a lot of people who won't even watch it or would never read that book because they know, everybody knows that that kid dies. You know, everybody knows that that's what sets it off. And that's so terrifying to a lot of people. I think King really knows how to tap into that. Erica asked a question. Why do we enjoy this? What drives us to want to be scared? Why am I more irritated by a movie that doesn't scare me than one that does? And it's by all reasonable person wouldn't want to do it to themselves. I mean, I think I have my own thoughts, but I'm curious what you think. I'm curious to hear what you think, though, Brian, because you do also come at this from the perspective of somebody who writes some speculative fiction. 
you know, and not from the horror aspect necessarily. No, not really. And I don't know that my perspective is all that deep, but I thought of a quote from the book Watership Down about the rabbits. And it says, many human beings say they enjoy the winter, but what they really enjoy is feeling proof against it. For them, there is no winter food problem. They have fires and warm clothes. The winter cannot hurt them and therefore increases their sense of cleverness and security. And I think that's what's going on with horror a little bit. This idea that at the end of the movie, yeah, I'm kind of shaken up if it was effective, but I'm in my safe house and I'm in my life that I have some amount of control over, even if it's a small amount or it's within a narrow scope. Um, And maybe why people don't maybe want to watch things that are too close to them. So someone who had lost a child wouldn't want to watch Pet Cemetery. Maybe with mental illness, you wouldn't want to watch The Exorcist because what's happening is too close to something you've seen in your life. But other things are just so off the rails. None of us has really experienced Freddy Krueger. And so we can all wallow in the fear. And then when it's over, know that, yeah, my dreams can't hurt me. They're just something that might scare me. So like I said, Erica, not all that deep, but I do think that there's something there. I think that's totally deep. That thrill and then being able to come back from it, like you survived something, even though you were never really at risk. It's the little thrill, the little fear of death that makes us feel alive. We're all in some way culturally scared of death. You know, whether or not you feel like you are personally scared of death, we all know it's coming. It's somewhere. We have an expiration date in our lives. And to feel that little thrill, maybe on some primal animal level, is a way to to get the sense of it and then bounce back and go, whew. Pat myself on the back. I survived that one. (laughs) Yeah, Brian, something you said made me think of possibly part of what we like is the fact that we can see something on screen that maybe has terrified us and we didn't know it terrified somebody else. And so there's that, oh, we can share in this horror together. Wow, the collectiveness of it. Yeah, it's like we all know that we all wet the bed when we are kids, but like there was a time when we didn't know everybody else wet the bed. And then we found out, oh, you wet the bed too? Oh, me too. And now it makes it okay. So Wait, did you say when we were kids? I mean... (laughs) You can't give me an opening with bathroom humor. You know that. You're totally right. (laughs) Having podcasted a while now, you're right, Erica. We have talked about things that I hadn't realized others among us have the same keyed in on the the same little things Mark talked about, like the fantasy of being able to stop time. And it's like, yeah, that's totally something I still think about too. And the, the universality of these things that appeal to us or in the case of what we're talking about today, the things that scare us, to know that having just watching something and it's kind of weird and then you just notice something in the background that's been looking at you the whole time and you crap your pants and it's, well, you know, they did that for a reason. It's because it scares a lot of people and it's not just me. And in one way, it makes you feel terrible because you realize you're not unique. But in another way, you're like, well, I mean, we're all in this together, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I always think that horror... Even though I think it's a personal thing because it is subjective and what scares one person might not fully scare somebody else, it's fun to, I love bringing people over to watch horror movies with people. It's always more fun to watch a scary movie with somebody else or to go through a haunted house with somebody else, not by yourself. I mean, it's fun by yourself, but it's that shared sense of exhilaration between two people and the connectiveness. I agree with that. I hadn't thought about that before, but totally. You're welcome, you guys. Sometimes I have a good thought. Mark, how about you? Any thoughts? I just think there are multiple reasons, multiple distinct elements that horror movies have and horror horror fiction has that offer some appeal. I will refer folks to this Matt Glasby article that we didn't do a lot of research for this, but he wrote a book called The Book of Horror after watching many, many, many horror movies and kind of breaks down. There are different things, right? The uncanny and the grotesque and dread and, you know, jump scares that these are all different elements that I was wondering why some people like 
horror movies that are bad, that are objectively bad. And it could be because it's kind of like porn that like, if you're watching horror movies for the jump scares, then everything else about it could be absolutely terrible. And as long as it has the jump scares or it has the gore that you want to see or both of those things, then the rest of the acting, the script, the plot, eh, we don't need that. So it just depends what you're in it for. I think that I had that kind of tolerance for that kind of movie when I was younger watching these things. And now I do demand something that is more getting at the uncanny, that's getting at dread, you know, or that is just a good movie in objective senses. I think there are good horror movies, right? I guess The Shining is often pulled out as an example of a movie that is actually a good movie. Maybe you didn't find it scary. Stephen King didn't find the Stanley Kubrick version scary himself, but it's still a quality movie. It's good characterization, well shot, good sets, good mood. So, you know, I think there are a lot of different reasons to answer the question of why we like being scared in particular. I just think that a lot of the reasons why we like horror movies are not actually directly connected to being scared. They're almost like some of them are like, you know, that we've got this vocabulary of horror that when you watch a kid's movie or something that has a funny wolfman and a funny vampire and a funny Frankenstein. And like, that's because we've even lost touch with how many people have like watched a Frankenstein thing that they were actually scared of. Like you have to go... You know, a few generations back, probably to find the actual horror origins, but it's almost like sci fi becomes space opera, just anything with space people in it. Well, anything with monsters in it is just has a certain appeal to it, I think, apart from its actual scariness. I could agree with that. I, on many levels, I see a lot of horror movies that I enjoy aren't necessarily because they're good movies. And sometimes the directors, to me, a good movie. Whether it's a horror comedy or if it's supposed to be cheesy, if the filmmakers achieve what they set up to do, it's a success for me. So if they're making a schlocky B horror movie and that's what they made, then kudos. You made a great, fun, campy, scary movie. And if I want to watch something like that, that's what I'll watch. It's when, and I don't remember, Brian, maybe when you watch a bad horror movie, which to me, a bad horror movie is when they set out to do something and they failed miserably. Like they wanted it to be an A-list, awesome horror movie. And it's a piece of crap with horrible script and bad writing and no characters and, you know, bad, just jump scares or something like that. And we see a lot of that. Give us an example. <laughs> Give us one. Oh man, there's so many of those, but like, okay, an example. And I have, you guys heard of Troll 2, right? Oh yeah. It's hilarious. Troll 2 is widely considered the worst movie ever made, even surpassing Plan 9 from Outer Space, Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space, which was long considered the worst movie ever made, both in the horror genre. Imagine that. But Troll 2, the director of that movie, I think he's an Italian gentleman. I, I, I'm not sure. I can't remember what his name is. He went into that thinking, this is my opus. This is great. There's a documentary about it that's quite funny to watch, too. Everybody making that movie kind of thought, this is shit. This isn't going to be good. But he was really into it and went out of it kind of offended that so many people hate it and was offended that people think it's the worst movie of all time because to him, it's still good. Like, where's that gap? How can you possibly think? And I know there's differences culturally from different areas of the world and what they consider to be within the, any specific genre. But that movie is awful. It's awful. I remember watching it when it first came out. I thought you were going to dish on on something that is beloved by people for being a good Midsummer did not do it for me. Do you think it's a bad movie or you just didn't like it? Uh, a mix of each. I mean, I, I definitely, there are things that I can appreciate about it. I think it is vastly overrated, <laughs> but it depends on what mood you catch me in. I know a lot of people who didn't like that movie. And I, you know, some of the movies I like that are slower paced movies, like I enjoyed It Follows and The Witch. 
And people who saw those movies, they hated it. They couldn't even get into it. They were like, this is the most boring film I've ever seen. People are saying that about The Haunting of Bly Manor, you know, that it's the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life. But I think everybody watches things for different reasons. I I enjoy the storytelling and I enjoy acting and the cinematography and I kind of break movies apart like that because I'm in that industry. And so that's what's interesting to me. But, you know, your opinion and other people's opinions are completely valid on everything. So when I talk to people about horror, I don't get mad anymore about what you didn't like that or you like that. That movie's shit. How can you like that? Because it's so subjective. What scares you? You know, some people can't let themselves go into the suspension of disbelief for anything that is beyond what they believe could physically happen in the real world. A serial killer, you know, mass murder kind of a thing or some sort of, you know, nuclear holocaust or, you know, something like that, that they think, oh my God, this could really happen. Some people who are very religious might be very terrified of things satanic. But to me, I haven't been scared of the devil in a long, long time. And movies like The Exorcist, I appreciate them anymore. It doesn't scare me, but I can get into it. I can get into it and it scares me. But I think The Witch made the devil scary to me again, but it's also set in the past. And it kind of took me out of my modern world and I was able to get into that story because it was so removed from my daily experience. I know Nathan's been working on some stuff for Halloween. Where can people find your work, Nathan? Frightmare Theater Podcast is available on all streaming services. We also have FrightmareTheaterPodcast.com. It's theater the old way. T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Frightmare Theater. Yeah, you can find us there. And I'd like, we're all over the place. But yeah, we have a big creature double feature coming up on Halloween that I'm busting my ass to edit right now. We got two great stories, wildly different, a horror comedy and a really disturbing piece set in the 1950s that one of my co-producers wrote. And it is, to me, it's one of the scariest things we've had on the show. It gets under my skin. I don't even like editing it. It's bothering me. It's that general sense of dread. It's not like a jump out, scare you kind of a thing at all. It's just unsettling and very disturbing to me. So we've got it all in this one Halloween episode. So yeah, check it out. (laughs) It's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks much for joining us. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you for having me. I always love to to meet you guys. I I love talking horror. All right. So long, listeners. Have a horrible night. Bye. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.